Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. It's official, he's running. Republican Senator Ron Johnson is breaking his campaign pledge and says he will seek a third term. Plus, a judge rejects Attorney General Josh Call's request to block a subpoena demanding a private interview with the state's top election official. And justices on the state Supreme Court are set to hear oral arguments in the redistricting battle. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for January 14th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. So, J.R., this week we're going to start with uh, news that actually broke over the weekend mm -hmm. on Sunday, but was expected because a lot of us had some whispers uh, with sources that U.S. Senator Ron Johnson will now seek officially a third term. So he announced on Sunday in an opt-ed and, well, the things are, the ads are coming, um, his announcement is coming. Let's just hear a little bit about why he decided to seek a third term after breaking a campaign pledge saying that he was only going to serve two terms. It feels like our country is being torn apart. That's not how it felt when I ran in 2016. Back then I intended to serve a second term and go home. But now, with the Democrats in total control, our nation's on a very dangerous path. If you're in a position to help make our country safer and stronger, would you just walk away? I've decided I can't. I'll stand and fight for freedom. I'm Ron Johnson, and I approve this message because I love America and Wisconsin just like you. Within hours, I will say, after his announcement, uh, the attack from Democrats and his multiple Democratic opponents that we already know that are entered the race released many statements. Um, I'm going to read a quick one from the Democratic Party of Wisconsin from Ben Wickler. Ron Johnson has been in the Senate looking out for himself at the expense of Wisconsinites and failing to do the job he was elected to do. And it's time to face the consequences. And this week, we already are seeing attack ads from a super PAC against Ron Johnson. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things. One, um I don't know if voters care that much about pledges about how many terms you're going to serve, but when I asked people at the opening message from Johnson being about why I broke this pledge, they were kind of perplexed because they're not sure voters care, but they surmise that Johnson cares. You know, Johnson's a different kind of politician. He doesn't view things the way others do. So to him, this must have been important, which is why it was in his opening ad. I mean, think about what things are going in the world right now, and that's your opening message of your reelection campaign. That said, He's getting hit on it. So we have this ad from uh, Dem Super PAC. It's about a million dollars, and it uses the broken pledge, but it's not just about the pledge. It's about portraying Johnson as up to his neck, quote-unquote, in the D.C. swamp. What they want to do is portray Johnson as somebody who's part of D.C. culture. Remember, he ran originally 12 years ago as an outsider. He was a citizen legislator. He was going to D.C. to clean it up, get out of there, and go back home. Well, now he wants 18 years at a minimum uh, in the U.S. Senate, right? It's hard to argue you're an outsider if you want to be in D.C. for that long, regardless of how outside the mainstream your comments are about things like COVID and that kind of stuff. Now, um, the other thing is the ad from this pack talks about how Johnson's out for himself. He's, his value, his uh, net worth has doubled while he's been in the U.S. Senate. That's based off of his disclosure statements with the Senate. Um, they're going to portray him as out for himself. He's benefiting himself, benefiting his donors. He's become part of the swamp. Um, the other, other Opportunity Wisconsin ad is about prescription drug prices or costs and that he's out for himself. He's not working for you. He's working for these big interests. They're trying to portray Johnson as part of like the D.C. swamp. He's become what he hates. 
I will see if that resonates. The challenge for Democrats is none of the other people who are running right now have proven that they can win in a, a difficult environment. I mean, it's still January. We'll see how things go. But Joe Biden's numbers was 33 percent in the Quinnipiac yeah. poll this week. That is not a good place for incumbent Democrat to, or incumbent president to be. And if you are a Democrat on the ballot with a president in the White House who is at 33 percent, it's a bad environment. So can Mandela Barnes or Sarah Galuski or Alex Lazary or, or Tom Nell, can they prove that, yeah, Ron Johnson said a bunch of stuff about COVID that's maybe a little bit out there. He may have turned off some suburban voters. Can they prove they can grab not just the Democratic base, but those middle voters and maybe even some Republican voters help them in a Republican environment, right? That's going to be a challenge for them. For Johnson, he's, he's running good environments now probably three times. Republican wave in 2010. In 16, he had the traditional suburban voters in Milwaukee for him, right, Republican voters, plus the Trump turnout, which helped him. He eclipsed Trump by 74,000 votes, that 16 ballot. Can he recreate that coalition in 2022 in a good Republican year, we think, but having said things on COVID that may have turned off those suburban voters, are they more turned off by that or by Joe Biden and DC and Dems being in control of Washington, D.C.? Uh, that I don't know. We'll find out in a couple months. Right. And this announcement also leaves the lingering, well, uh, this big lingering question surrounding Kevin Nicholson, who mm-hmm. is a former mar- Marine veteran. He ran in 2018 for U.S. Senate but lost in the primary. Now, he has suggested that since Ron Johnson has announced that he will likely uh, maybe make announcement to get into the governor's race. Um, that kind of leads us to our next topic, speaking of the governor's race and these massive fundraising numbers that we got this week. Uh, Governor Tony Evers made an announcement that he raised $10 million in 2020, and so that amounts to $10.5 million cash on hand. And Rebecca Clayfish, in just four months, raised $3.3 million. And Clayfish's pot is the largest for any candidates first report over the last four, I believe, uh, gubernatorial elections. So, um, and we also had some other fundraising numbers with Attorney General Josh Call, but just speak to this nature, Jair, of every year it seems like every election, it is more and more millions of millions of dollars being poured into these elections. The Wisconsin Democracy Campaign uh, tracked the most expensive governor's race of 2018. It's around $93, $94 million. Um, Walker and Clayfish combined to spend 36 and change. Uh, Evers and Mandela Barnes, 10 and change. So they spent basically half of the money dropped in that election in 2018. So what's this mean for going forward? Now, these numbers are impressive on the surface. I haven't seen how they raised it. And why I want to see that is, like uh, Evers, for example, first half of the year, he raised five million bucks as well. A million came from the state party. Remember, uh, Republicans changed fundraising rules in 2015 or 16. They say that state parties can take unlimited contributions and make unlimited transfers to candidates. It's no longer just the candidate, him or herself. It's the candidate plus the party. What can they put together? So $5 million sounds great for Governor Evers, but how much was from the party? How much from individuals? Right. Clayfish, the same thing. How did she raise the money? A lot of big-dollar donors. Was it you know, small-dollar donors? I want to see that. Uh, now, Call, Call raised $675,000 in a six-month period. Yeah, banked $1 million. By comparison, Brad Schimmel... The same report four years ago had $529,000 cash on hand. The cost keeps going up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no big surprise, but again, I want to see how Call raised the money. Where did it come from? And we'll have those reports out uh, next Tuesday. They are due by the end of the day, Tuesday, and we will see Eric Tony, for example, the Republican, the final county DA in uh, running for AG. Did he improve on his first funding report? He better. He wants to send a <laughs> right, message he that he's to. serious. Right. And then you have Adam Jarko, who's out there, who's kind of in, but hasn't really formally announced. He really didn't start raising money, though, 
uh, at the at the end of this last year, so he won't have much there. We don't think to show. So we're, he's still a mystery in terms of like the AG's race. Like, what, where is he going to be come July when he files the first report? Assuming he actually gets in the race fully, both feet, no questions asked, he's in kind of thing. And next, we just want to give a little bit of an update because on Thursday, this upcoming Thursday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court justice will finally hear some oral arguments on the redistricting battle. And I think they've slated about five hours or mm-hmm. so, but, you know, those things can go uh, much longer at times. Uh, and the court also refused this week to not allow uh, the state's GOP House members to submit an alternative map to the first one that they proposed. So I guess what can people expect uh, on oral arguments on Thursday and how does that impact the GOP congressional districts? So they're going to go, there are eight parties who are supposed to argue. They I apologize. Get, I also said Thursday. It is Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Eight parties, 30 minutes each, and then 10 minutes each for rebuttal. So if they use all the time, and that's assuming there's no, like, extra questions that go over, we're talking five hours plus. Um, a couple things to note. One, the court told parties you get one map, essentially. What Evers and this group of plaintiffs did, or parties said, was, hey, we have, to, we have some corrections to our map. They argued they were not significant, that they basically move a couple of pieces here and there, but they're not significant. These are small things. The congressional delegation, the Republican congressional delegation, wanted to submit an alternative map. That was the rub for the court. So the fourth majority uh, declined, except the Republican map. The whole court basically took the governor's map and the party's map saying, okay, you made change. We, we kind of envisioned that would happen, but this alternative map is one step too far. We're not going to accept this. It doesn't really change things a whole lot because in the end, the question is, what's the court going to pick, right? And they have the freedom not just to pick a map, but to change lines on the map submitted. Also worth noting, they asked for overlays. So what it means is you're going to have, like, here's the original map of Milwaukee, for example. These, like, transparencies you can flip yeah. over and see, like, okay, they move this line. Now the question is, is the court looking at least change from a, a geography standpoint or a demographic standpoint? Because, yes, um, somebody may have moved a bunch of lines in Milwaukee, but there's been demographic change in Milwaukee in terms of like population. These districts have to get bigger in Milwaukee, especially majority black districts, because they're not as big as other districts anymore. They've lost population compared to Madison, for example. So what's the court getting at with the transparencies? What's that least change approach mean for them as they, they evaluate these maps? And then next, uh, we're kind of going to start from earlier in the week about the latest with the Gableman investigation. He got a minor victory in court on Monday when the Dane County Judge Rhonda Lanford denied Attorney General Josh Koss's request for a uh, subpoena, or excuse me, a request to block the subpoena that would demand a private interview with Megan Wolf, who is the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Now, Technically, these subpoenas, uh, Gableman could any time now um, force Wolf to testify and to come to his office in Brookfield. But it's important to note that Lamford also declined Gableman's request to dismiss mm-hmm. the case. So Lamford kind of said in her ruling that if that were to happen, if Gableman says, hey, Wolf, I want you to come by 9 p.m. on next Monday, she might step in and then rule again. Um, I'm also going to read a quick reaction from Attorney General Josh Call. He kind of alluded to that this doesn't really eliminate the case at all. It's still technically pending. Now, while today's decision doesn't preliminary block the subpoenas, it does make it clear that the court will reconsider doing so if there's any attempt to enforce the subpoenas before the challenge to the subpoenas is fully litigated. So, 
this is kind of the latest, like I said, a little bit of victory to Gableman, but we actually just don't know if he's if he's going to force these or not. A key part of Lanford's decision was that there's no evidence just yet that Gableman's trying. There's a there's a harm to Megan Wolf. Gableman has issued a subpoena but hasn't tried to like penalize her with a contempt citation for refusing to comply. Without that actual harm, pending harm, she's not met one of the four burdens. I think it's four burdens for this injunction she was seeking. So what Lanford's saying is okay. If there's an actual harm there, then we can talk. So it's maybe kind of putting things on hold until we see if Gaiman tries to force Wolf, Wolf to come in with a contempt citation, which I've never seen a contempt citation from the Assembly Committee yeah. in my lifetime, so that will be a new one for me. But that's what's to watch there. Is there going to be this effort to actually compel her with a threat, a threat like the threat that the mayors of Green Bay and Madison now face, right? This other court hearing going on in Waukesha County Court. Yeah, and the ruling leaves, leaves the door open for call to still challenge the subpoena. Um, also want to mention on Tuesday, in a separate uh, ruling by a judge, they denied Assembly Speaker Robin, Robin Voss' request to delay sitting down uh, with a group, a watchdog group, liberal watchdog group, uh, American Oversight, because they've been trying to seek records about Gableman's investigation. Well, that was denied, and the next day he had to sit down for this deposition. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, because we can't really, we don't, we don't really know what was mm-hmm. discussed but it kind of was a, a big, I guess, letdown for Voss, who thought he had the court on his side, but we saw uh, kind of a, now a swing justice, I guess you can see, uh, say, is Brian Hagendor and ruled with um, uh, ruled on the other side with yeah. a 4-3 ruling. He actually went over 3. He asked the circuit court judge to stay the deposition. He asked the appeals court, the third district, to stay it, and he asked the Supreme Court to stay it. They all said no. Now, there were different kind of motions filed, but what the conservative minority on the Supreme Court said was, hey, there's a constitutional issue here in which a sitting lawmaker isn't supposed to be part of a civil process during a session. That should be raised. There's also a client privilege issue. Robbins' lawyers didn't raise that issue in the filings. And Hagedorn, joined the liberals, said, look, um, they didn't meet the burden, the, the process we have and the rules to get this kind of a request they asked for. It's not our job as a court to fix their deficient filing. It's an interesting question, but that's on them. Raise the question, why didn't Voss's attorney raise it? It's an obvious issue of, and actually, if you go back two decades ago, Chuck Koala, then the Senate Majority Leader, uh, tried to block the caucus scandal investigation into him because he said, look, I'm in session. You can't do this. And it didn't work. But anyway, kind of curious why didn't bring it up in this whole process. And now uh, Voss sat for this Zoom call deposition that you and I and everybody else wants to know what was in the deposition. What, what happened? Yeah. Will there we'll be a recording about. in the court record? Will there be a, de- a transcript? But we're all dying to see what was asked. And especially for TV, was it recorded on <laughs> video? We would love to have that as well. Um, also this week, uh, the Wisconsin Elections Commission met and they discussed, and I would say almost bashed, a request by the co-chair of the Assembly Elections Committee, uh, Michelle Erb, uh, Representative Branchin, that she wanted to seek uh, a, basically a FOIA request that the commissioner said could be millions of documents and cost thousands of do- uh, that dollars to produce. So let's hear from some commissioners that kind of just, you know, said this is an outrageous request that we don't really know what they want to find. The data being requested would contain hundreds of millions, if not billions, of data points. Um, simple logistics like running the queries would mean that we'd have to dedicate our servers to this task for days, if not a week, um, meaning we'd have to pause other essential tasks like redistricting. 
Um, second, sending such a file would be nearly impossible and we'd need to coordinate technological applications. The request asks for personally identifiable information, which is protected under law like date of birth, social security number, driver license number, and more. Uh, there's no legal exception to provide this data to the legislature um, or really any other entity except for law enforcement or clerks. Administrative code says if the request requires a uh, custom report and commission staff determines that it can produce the report, um, I, you just said we'd have to shut down our service for a week. That means we cannot produce this information. We can offer what we have. We can offer what we've produced. If they want something else, I mean, I'm of the opinion that if the answer is we want you to shut down your servers for a week, then they can sue us. Uh, staying on the topic of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, uh, they also were a big topic in a Waukesha uh, judge's ruling on Thursday, which basically ruled that they will ban ballot drop boxes in Wisconsin. So the decision kind of gives conservatives a victory right now. Uh, the lawsuit was brought forth by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. They challenged that there is no state law that allows the use of these. It's not written anywhere mm -hmm. in state election law. And the ruling uh, basically um, what it will do is allow people to return their ballot in person or by mail, but not physically put it in those boxes that we saw became very popular during the 2020 election because of the pandemic, forced a lot of people to stay in their homes, or some people just didn't feel comfortable waiting in long lines to cast a ballot. Um, of course, Democrats and some local clerks that I've been talking to since the ruling yesterday are pretty upset. We have a spring primary coming up. Uh, are we going to have to see these boxes removed? They're both to the ground. It's important to note that the officials in Madison and Milwaukee that I talked to, um, the clerk's offices say they are under surveillance video. Um, they're placed at things like libraries, one at the clerk's office, fire stations, etc. Um, I'm going to read a quick statement from Ben Wickler again from the Democratic Party of Wisconsin because this is basically what Democrats have been arguing about is that they are saying that this is an attack on our freedom to vote. Absentee ballot drop boxes provide an easy and accessible safe way for voters to cast a ballot. So I guess the big question here, JR, is yes, we have this court ruling. An appeal is likely. Mm -hmm. We could even see it go all the way up to the Supreme Court. So nothing is finalized, of course, no. with any court decision. But, I mean, it, it's it's kind of a big deal because we might not see these last because we also have a, a, a JCRER also has the ability to ban drop boxes as well. So a couple of things. One, the judge told the Elections Commission that they had, they had two weeks to form uh, local clerks so they no longer could use drop boxes. We have a statewide primary, February 15th. Well, not statewide because we don't say our races this spring, but there are appeals court races, local races set on the ballot February 15th. They can't use drop boxes for ballots then. Let's rewind to pre-2020. We didn't really use drop boxes in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So this is all a kind of a creation of voting in a pandemic and the move toward absentee ballots in 2020. In 2020, we had 3.3 million votes cast in the, Supreme, or the presidential race in Wisconsin. 1.3 million and change were absentee ballots by mail. 635,000 were absentee ballots returned in person to clerks. We don't know how many went through the drop boxes. It's a convenience. So I don't know if it's really truly an attack on how we vote. It's pre-2020. It is, though, something we've gotten used to. So that's the question. What's going to happen from here? The Audit Bureau found remembrance report that there's nothing that says you can use a drop box or that they're banned. They weren't really envisioned before. What the judge focused on was Visit state law it says if the elector must return the ballot in the mail or in person. 
and to him that meant no unmanned drop boxes could be used. You can still have a drop box in the clerk's office. You can walk mm -hmm. a clerk, drop it in. That's still fine. You can actually, if the clerk uh, designates an alternative site where there's actually absentee voting going on, you can also turn it there. But the reality is you're not getting one of the street corner, the library. The park events. Where those events are not going to, would be loud. Uh, law Ford is one of the law firms involved in the lawsuit on behalf of some of the parties. It's a little secret stay of this as it appeals. Remember, the state Supreme Court uh, a few months back declined to hear a, a request for original action, also in drop boxes. So they said it wasn't ready yet. Basically, had to go through the lower courts first. Well, now you have a case in the lower courts, flushed out the issues. Now we may see what the Supreme Court is about this issue, which may be the final word, unless lawmakers and the governor reach a deal, right? Because mm -hmm. there's administrative rules process. And the other judge also ruled that this should have been gone through the administrative rules process, not guidance from the Elections Commission. JCRAR Monday said, you have to issue within 30 days emergency rule and drop boxes. We'll see what happens because the commission is, remember, three Democrats and three Republicans. If they can't agree on what the guidance is going to be, they may not be able to comply with it. Then you could have a lawsuit and all this other kind of stuff going on. So yeah. it could be a while, but the bottom line is that um, it's with not voting. Over. No. <laughs> and with voting in 2022, are we going to be voting in a pandemic the same way in 2020? People are afraid to go back to the polls. That I don't know. We got used to voting by mail in 2020. But is it going to say the same interest in voting that way versus how we've always done it, going to the polls and doing it on Election Day or in the 10 days, two weeks prior to early in-person voting? Um, let's also just uh, hear a little bit from the judge on his ruling, uh, basically what we kind of just recapped a little bit. I hear the commission regulates and, and governs elections. They issued these memos, I can only assume, not because they had nothing better to do but they issued it to give specific instructions to, to municipalities and how they should conduct elections. And in particular, can collect absentee ballots. Critical issue, obviously, and critical issue from the standpoint of the, of the intervening parties in this case as well, the issue of in, in election security, uh, election integrity is, is key. And when you deal with apps, when you address absentee ballots, it's even more critical for all the reasons that you have absentee ballots. I'm satisfied that it's, uh, it's, it is a rule, they were proposed rules and they should have gone through the rulemaking policy. Also this week, there was a lot of public hearings on some controversial COVID-19 bills uh, introduced by Republicans. It's basically their uh, pitch, in a sense, uh, to get people back into the workforce sooner mm -hmm. and to really ease some staffing shortages. So one bill specifically would treat previous COVID-19 infections as a way to meet a vaccine or testing requirement to return to work. It would allow employees who don't follow COVID-19 mandates to still qualify for unemployment benefits if they are fired. So that's a separate proposal. So all of these come uh, at, at a really probably bad time for Wisconsin just because we're reaching record-setting infections and hospitalizations. But Republicans are arguing that these are necessary uh, to get people back to work sooner. And Democrats are just thinking, in a sense, let's just summarize it, they think they're ridiculous, mm -hmm. uh, that COVID immunity shouldn't be um, a way to go back to work. You should still have to wear a face mask or show a vaccine requirement. So we're going to hear from Democrat and Republican on the arguments on these bills. Making a choice of having a vaccine or not having a vaccine is not equal to discrimination based on a person's color of their skin, their national origin, things of that nature. 
I think someone needs to stand up against the conspiracy theories of you and the Republicans on this issue. I want to know concretely, what are you going to do to save lives? This is not made up. This is based on over 141 studies that have been done worldwide, as well as by the University of Madison. Having the vaccination does not prevent you from spreading it nor getting it. What it does is if you are susceptible, it might lessen your symptoms. Forcing people to inject a drug into their body, an experimental drug, into their body is wrong. Health officials are also arguing that these proposals could encourage people to avoid getting vaccinations and prolong the pandemic. And supporters, as you just heard from Senator Falskowski, they just believe it's a protection that will help our workforce struggles. Um, just want to run it out of time here, so we're going to move on to the next topic, JR. Um, also this week, that petition that we've talked about on this show that requested Governor Evers to remove Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm from office, well, that petition failed. Uh, the complaint that demanded the removal uh, was ruled invalid. And uh, what the governor's spokeswoman, uh, Britt Cudabek, said is that if there's new information, if there's new concerns, they'll still investigate it. Um, but as of right now, what we heard from Evers' attorney is that he said, in quote, it is my opinion that the complaint fails to meet the statutory standards necessary for the governor to step in. So what the governor did, as he said, he would promise to do that if he got a formal complaint, it would be reviewed, it would be vetted. He did. And the Evers attorney basically said in his memo that we didn't find sufficient reasonings to fire him. Mm -hmm. So asking about this, I don't know if this issue, like how it was handled, the complaint was handled alone is a a problem for Evers. But what Republicans are going to try and do is pair this with Kenosha and crime in general to say the governor is soft on crime. Um, it's also something that jazz up the Republican base. So the politics of it are about that. This overall crime issue, violent protests in Kenosha in 2020, crime is rising various places, not just Wisconsin, but around the, the country. And here's a, a DA who's got these policies in place that have let uh, people charged with crimes get on a $500,000 bail um, that this is a problem and he's allowed these dangerous people in the community. So that's the message you're gonna hear from Republicans going forward and why they've also got queued up number of minim mandatory minimum bail bills. Right. Um, this whole package of legislation about law enforcement with ARPA money, it's all about driving a soft on crime message with Tony Evers and Josh Call to some extent too. And the assembly will be back on Thursday next week. They haven't finalized their calendar yet, but we're seeing some, some COVID-related bills and bail reform as well. So expected to see possibly those on the floor next week. Uh, let's get to stock picks. Uh, this week you have rising Cavalier Johnson, who is one of, who's interim Milwaukee mm -hmm. mayor and faces a lot of primary opponents in the Milwaukee race. So look, uh, Cavalier announced last week he had 350 grand in the bank end of the year, which is a pretty healthy number for somebody running for mayor of Milwaukee. The news that came after that was that Chris Abley told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel he's going to back Cavalier. Now, Abley's a former county executive. He also spent $675,000 through his uh, group, his kind of a expenditure group, to help David Crowley win the county executive's office in 2020. Um, he has resources if he wants to help somebody. In a short sprint of a race in which you had nomination papers were due on Tuesday, six people made the ballot, um, you have a primary February 15th. Resources help. You have to communicate to people. Having 350 grand is great. Having Chris Abley potentially backing you is also a big deal in a crowded primary. 
And uh, this week we have mixed as Rebecca Clayfish because of potential another candidate, mm -hmm. Republican candidate, that will uh, maybe enter the governor's race. Yeah, so look, she had a great number for a challenger uh, overshadowed by Evers, but okay. But she's got both Kevin Nicholson and Eric Hovde talking about running for governor. So you have this potential of Clayfish having to spend money in the primary to get through. Now, primaries aren't always bad. I mean, Tony Evers had a, what, a 12-way primary at one point, got on eight people, whatever it was, uh, for governor in 2018, yeah. right? So it doesn't necessarily hurt you if you spend your resources wisely. The thing is, her $3.3 is bad news for Kevin Nicholson. Kevin Nicholson can't write a check, right? He relies somewhat on help from outside groups in 2018 in a Senate bid funded by Dick Uline, this kind of mega donor from Illinois. Eric Hovde, though, can write a check. And he can make up that gap fairly quick. The question is, is Eric Hovde that interested in running? We will see. But you have this challenge. Oh, by the way, there's Tommy Thompson can't help himself. He says maybe he'll run for governor. I don't think he's going to do that. Um, but Tommy, he is a classic politician. He'll never say never. Right. Any chance to run for anything. But all that chatter still equals up to people going, okay, is Clayfish the strongest person challenge Tony Evers this fall? And it shows there's some people looking for alternative. So it's a challenge for her. And following this week, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, because we talked a little bit earlier about those depositions and kind of the multiple uh, court uh, requests that were denied. And, you know, we kind of talked a little bit before the show, Jared, this kind of, he kind of put himself in this yeah. situation because he launched this investigation. Look, uh, Robin Voss opened Pandora's box by hiring Michael Gablin to do this investigation. Everything that's flowed out of that has been an issue for Robin. He's trying to placate uh, Donald Trump. People tell me that whatever Gablin finds, it won't placate some people in the Republican base because they think the election was stolen. Unless you overturn the results or put somebody in prison, they're not going to be happy. There is no clear off-ramp for Robin Voss in this entire thing. You have an investigation where Gablin says he's going to have recommendations by the end of February, but it's not going to be over in the February. There are a lot of things going on. This is going to go on for a while. Now, Robin sat for this deposition. What's in it, Right. It's always a little bit tricky about the deposition and what you may have said or what they can bring back to, against you later on. It is all growing out of this decision he made to bring in Gamelin. He, he did this to himself, essentially, people tell me, and they don't know how he's going to get out of it. He is one of the smartest guys in the Capitol. Yeah. Everybody knows no that. Doubt. Yep. But he's not sure where he's going with this thing. Nobody thinks. I'm not trying to get out of it. Well, by the way, the same day he gave a Zoom deposition, he was also a uh, rack, a Republican Assembly Campaign Committee, had a fundraiser in Key West. Florida, uh, 6000 bucks per person. They had a tour of Ernest Hemingway's house, a private dinner there, catamaran tour the next day. So not great timing for all that. So a Zoom call, but it's just like that juxtaposition wasn't helpful either for Robin and how this whole thing went down. And American Oversight, the attorneys who sat down with Robin Voss said they didn't quite finish it, so they are expected to wrap that up uh, maybe in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that will do it this week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks for joining us. Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.